Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. Today, I'm speaking with Frederick Brown, an independent historian based in Seattle and the author of The City is More Than Human, an animal history of Seattle, which was published by the University of Washington Press in 2016, and last year won the Western History Association's Hal K. Rothman Prize for Best Book on the Environmental History of the American West. Fred, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. First, why don't we begin by having you tell us a bit about yourself. How did you become interested in history in the first place? Okay, well, I followed a kind of circuitous route to to graduate school in environmental history, but I've been a book indexer and librarian through most of my 20s and 30s and always interested in ideas and books and, and academic study. But then I started coming across books by Richard White and... uh, and Matt Klingel's dissertation about Seattle and and just found that environmental history was a, a very interesting field I might be interested in getting a graduate degree in. So I, I attended the University of Washington and got a graduate degree in environmental history. And I just found a really useful way to think about the environment, maybe in more complex ways than, than mainstream environmentalism does, and also a way to, to think about history, bringing in that important relationship between human beings, and and the rest of nature. Could I ask you briefly about your book indexing work? Because I realize that's not a field that I really know much about. What is that process like, and how did you get involved in that in the first place? I got involved in that um, in my early 20s, and when I was a perpetual graduate student, first in French studies, and I got a job in a book indexing firm in, in New York that did book indexes for many of the major publishing houses in New York, and um, I kind of learned starting with proofreading and then and then doing indexes. But but the process is uh, is to read the book and and do the obvious thing like take names that should be in the index, but then think about what are the, what is each page about or what is each paragraph about and what are the the terms the author is using, what are the synonyms that you want to relate to each other, and then construct a a structure of the ideas to put put in the index. So I've been doing that off and on for the last 30 years and and not very much the last 10 years, but but um, it's a, a good way to read some books and to, in a kind of different way thinking about the structure of the ideas and, and how would users want to access those ideas from the index. So turning to the book at hand then, what brought you to the topic of animals in Seattle specifically? Well, I think I've always been struck by by the paradoxes and complexities of how we relate to animals, how, you know, generally people tend to love cats and dogs and and be indifferent to the lives of, of faraway cattle, pigs and chickens. And my own life I kind of saw those contradictions growing up in college towns in Oklahoma, seeing pets in the city and then visiting my grandparents' farms and seeing the very different lives of 
of cattle on farms. And, and it seems like there's just this strong paradox that even as you go through time, you know, as we talk more and more about being animal lovers, and there's more and more rhetoric about concern for animals, the lives of most animals that are important to us, the, the livestock animals, have tended to become worse and worse. So there's these incredible contradictions that made me think this is a very interesting topic to look at and, and to think through. And so I was, when I was in graduate school, um, I managed to find a number of, of very interesting documents in the municipal archives in Seattle about, about how people related to their dogs and cats and the cows in the city. And so I got rolling with that as part of my dissertation and, and then turned it into a book. Could you talk a little bit more about the archival research that you did for this book? Because um, for those that haven't gotten the, the opportunity to hold it in their hands yet, there's some really incredible images in there. Um, it's very image heavy in a, in a very good way. It, it adds to the book quite a bit. And I'm wondering how you got all those images and how what archives one uses to access the animal history of a city. Well, certainly um, the images are, are available in a variety of different sources and some, some are available online the University of Washington and the Seattle Municipal Archives and our, our Mohai Museum, the Museum of History and Industry, which is the Seattle and, and broader Puget Sound region history museum. So all of those have these images, but I think you have to do a lot of scanning the images themselves. They're not always indexed um, with the names of the animals. So I spent a fair amount of time going through the images say at the University of Washington and looking at street scenes and then occasionally you'll see a, a cow in a backyard or a cow in a street that might have escaped other people's attention. So I think it's looking at, at sources that are widely available but looking at them in a in a different way. And then now I was very fortunate that that you know as a book indexer I'd say I'm very fortunate that uh, the Seattle Municipal Archives has been very well indexed and Individual petitions that were filed were indexed by categories, including uh, animals involved. I was able to find a whole collection of uh, petitions about cows in the city and petitions about dogs and cats and, and able to, to look up some of the names of the petition signers and correlate them with the city directories and, and find occupations. So I was able to build uh, a lot of information from from you know, the excellent indexing of the collections at the Nisla Archives and, and, and also the state archives have some of the property records which, um, which you know, show the importance of animals and, and how they were treated as property but also allow you to see who owned, who owned cows at a certain time. And again, you can look at their occupations or even the property records might show their, their household worth so you can make uh, various assertions about about you know family income and, and animals own. So so um, it's it's not the main thing people look for in archives, but that information is there in the city that's kept a lot of the petitions that, that got to the city. And you mentioned with the images, looking at images in a different way. And I was struck by how many of the, the pictures that are in the book, the images that are in the book, in a different kind of book might just be sort of your almost generic city scene. But because they're in a book about the animal history of animals, uh, or of a city, excuse me, the animals really jump out. And I thought that was, it was, it was very well done. I just, I really liked that, that part of the book. Thanks. 
So before we turn to the urban history of animals in the Puget Sound region, can you provide a brief overview of the early history of Seattle? When was the city founded and who lived in the region prior to the arrival of Europeans? The Salish people, and including the Duwamish people who have lived and continue to live in what is currently Seattle, um, Salish people have been uh, here for millennia since time immemorial and uh, had an economy uh, where the salmon were incredibly important and where animals were incredibly important. You see that, among other things, in the names they use for places on the landscape. The names that uh, newcomers have attached to places in Seattle are often the names of people and uh, like the street names, the neighborhood names. But uh, if you look at a list of, of the names of civic places that that Duwamish people use, a number of them refer to the fishes or beavers or ducks or other animals that are an important part of their life. So um, Salish people have been here since time immemorial, and uh, Europeans and other newcomers first came to Puget Sound in a semi-permanent way with the, the fur trade in the 1830s, uh, setting up Fort Nisqually about 40 miles south of what is now Seattle. And Seattle was founded in 1851 um, when the, the Denny Party arrived and, and also the Luther Collins Party arrived that year. And, and um, so Seattle was founded in 1851 and um, an important part of the economy was, was the lumber in the region. And, and Seattle grew and a, a big point of its... Um, coming quite a bit bigger was the, the gold rush of the 1890s when this is a jumping off point for people heading to the Klondike in uh, Alaska and Canada to um, get to mine for gold. So, so the economy boomed then and Seattle became, became much larger. So, so Seattle's history, um, history of the region goes back millennia, but the, the founding of Seattle was in 1851. And animals, of course, were present from day one of European settlement and conquest within the Puget Sound region. How were animals a part of early Seattle? And what did they symbolize for different groups of people in the city's early history? Yes, animals were, were crucial in, in the founding of Seattle. And, and there's just a whole suite of, of animals that Europeans had, that Americans had in the eastern United States. And they brought all of them here very quickly and and in some ways in the context of the fur trade there was a sense that that these Europeans wanted to create uh, an economy with European style agriculture and animals were a crucial part of that. Um, so they brought cattle, pigs and chickens and and cats and dogs and um, geese and ducks and bees and and within ten years this whole suite of animals was there. And these animals were crucial in many ways, and an important way to to note is that they were important in the land claims that Europeans made. That that the very land laws that um, were used to to assert a European uh, control of a property included implicitly animals. There was an Oregon Donation Act that 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 many of the founders used to claim land. There was language saying that that white people could claim 
a certain amount of land if it was cultivated. And the information that was used in legal documents to prove land was cultivated were the, the sorts of structures and buildings that were needed for animals, like stables and fences and coops. So, so animals were essential and woven into um, people's sense of uh, to European sense of, of ownership and, and of land being cultivated so that had an important legal sense and um, and that important symbolic sense of, of you know, familiar reminders of life in other parts of the United States and and a sign of progress that, that they had animals here that were that were also in the eastern United States. And as people arrive from the east, and, and as, as you put it, they bring this suite of animals with them, what happens to the region's predators who had existed prior to European arrival? Right, so there was a whole change in, in the animals that, that had land and that had uh, what they needed to survive. And, and there was this conflict between domestic and wild animals. So uh, in order to uh, create a safe space, especially uh, for cows that, that often wandered far from the city, um, the newcomers made an asserted effort to, to kill cougars and wolves and other creatures that threatened those. So, so, the, so their numbers decreased greatly. And, and there was um, an agricultural system that was kind of halfway between wild and domestic, where cows would wander far from the city and would not be completely controlled by, by those who owned them, but they would come home at the end of the day to to get their food or even to be, to get fodder or even to be uh, reunited with their calves. So, um, so the set of animals that, that were here changed greatly. And, and of course, animals take, took their own actions in some ways to, to take advantage of, of this changing environment. There's stories, for instance, of, of, uh, of crows watching hogs on the beach taking up clams and crows following the hogs to get a little bit of the clams themselves. So the animals, the animals that have always been there were certainly harmed, but they also found new opportunities. And you mentioned cows, and cattle are an animal that pop up repeatedly throughout your history of Seattle, which I thought was interesting because, at least for myself, cows are not an animal that I readily associate with cities, at least not in 2018. So can you tell us a little bit about what you call the cattle history of the city and what that history can tell us about Seattle's changing urban geography? Yeah, cows seem like one of the most important animals in, in early Seattle and even in the 1890s, early 20th century as, as the city was growing. And I think, I think there's a cultural importance to newcomers to have a source of milk, which was a familiar food from, from back east. There are stories in the, from the year of the founding in 1851 that they had to rely on clam juice because they didn't have milk. And that story was repeated. It kind of shows the importance of, of milk to a sense of identity. And, and the legal system provided a freedom for cows that it really didn't for other large domestic animals. And, and in various ways, at different times, provided provisions that allowed a family to let a cow roam free in certain areas of the city so the cow could, could graze in, in what I call the cow commons, not a specific place like like the Boston Common, but but um, open, undeveloped lots, the edge of town where there was places to graze, or even the streets where there were places to graze. So, so the law provided that that there would be 
a way for families to keep a cow. And they might be limited to one or two cows for, for families, but sometimes they had to wear uh, a collar with a, an ID number on it. But the cows were, were seen as, uh, as a sign of progress that this was becoming a more Europeanized place. And, um, and, then, and then at a certain point, they came to be seen as, as, as backward. And then there were struggles about removing them from neighborhoods. Yeah, you you talk a lot in the book about kind of the changing symbols and of animals and what animals represent and how historically contingent those representations are. So as you tell it, cows to some people come to represent essentially everything that a city should not be um, fairly early on in the 20th century. Horses, however, have a somewhat more complicated relationship to this idea of modernity and what a modern city should look like. Can you tell us about horses as workers and as changing symbols in early 20th century Seattle? Right, yeah, those two animals are the are the two biggest, most prevalent domestic animals, and 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 cows become a symbol of backwardness. But but horses um, and cows are sort of removed through through legal means, making it illegal for them to wander publicly. But horses are really only kind of very gradually removed from say 1900 until 1940, as people made a choice to remove them. I think uh, they had a very different position. Because they, for much longer, were a symbol of modernity and a symbol of, of progress in the city. They, they did a lot of the work in, in creating the city. The, the width of the streets had been set up wide enough that a carriage could turn around in them. Um, horses did the work of, of digging out excavations for buildings. They did some of the work of, of regrading downtown, of, of smoothing out the hills downtown to allow commerce to happen more easily and and there are even photographs of them you know helping install electrical equipment so the horses were seen as as a sign of the modern city even even say in 1900 and and for instance stationary of, of businesses and and public entities would have pictures of horses to show this is a this is a dynamic important place whereas cows would never be in those sorts of images and 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 there are any number of problems with horses that um, you know, advocates for automobiles uh, recognize, and, and such as you know, the humane concern about the suffering of horses, the sanitary concerns about horses. Um, there is a the problem of, of the willfulness of horses that they could run wild and create havoc. But their importance is shown by the fact that as long as they're economic import, economically important, all of those problems, people put up with them and, and found ways to, to mitigate them or to deal with them because, because horses were, were essential to the economy of the city until automobiles gradually uh, proved to be more, more efficient at moving, at moving commerce and people in the city. And automobiles replaced not only horses, but they replaced walking and public transportation to some extent. So the horses followed a very different trajectory than, than cows had. So I myself am a, uh, a cat owner. And so I really enjoyed your chapter in the middle of the book about cats and dogs in urban Seattle. Can you talk a bit about the history of pets in cities such as Seattle and when dogs and cats and animals of that nature start to become more common than cows and horses and other large animals that we might classify as livestock? Sure. I mean, that, 
was a big transition of the 20th century from from cows and horses and, and chickens being the most common prevalent animals people knew to, to cats and dogs, although cats and dogs had always been here. And, and uh, I've been a proud cat owner most of my life. Unfortunately, I'm not right now, but um, that's an important part of my life. So I think that's, that's very important. And, and, and the role of, of cats and dogs changed a great deal in the 20th century from um, a very complex role that kind of mixed uh, friendship and work in the early 20th century. You see in many ways that uh, that dogs and cats were ex- expected to do work. The cats had important work in getting rid of mice and rats and protecting protecting grain, protecting stores. And there are various images in the book of, of a cat that's an important part of the of the team at a at a grocery store, an important uh, member of the crew on a ship. And, and there are also dogs who had very important work in guarding property and in helping with hunting. And, and you often would see ads in the newspaper that, that people would, would say they, they had a dog that was both a good friend to children and, and a good guard dog. And so those roles were, were very combined. But um, I think because they were kept often for economic importance, their, their numbers were smaller and people you know, generally uh, only kept them when, when they needed them, but, but as there is greater prosperity and as there are um, consumer innovations and technological innovations that made keeping dogs and cats easier, like, like cat litter and uh, canned uh, dog and cat food, and people could afford those more, the number of, of, of dogs and cats increased. And as, as the primary reason for keeping them became affection, almost, you know, not everybody, but and most people uh, appreciate the affection of either dogs or cats. So the numbers increased you know, five or tenfold, at least dogs, the numbers increased five or tenfold per capita through the 20th century. And, and, and through the last half of the 20th century, I think it's certainly not 100%, but for most people, the, the importance of cats and dogs is that they are, they are family members and friends and, and sources of, of affection and and comfort and, and interaction. And, and I think, you know, it's the exact reasons for those changes are hard to say because it's in the area of, of sentiment and, and connection and the sources aren't as detailed as about economic things. But I think, I think there's sort of three big reasons. And one is, is economic growth that people can afford these animals. One is the departure of livestock. And I think that people feel that desire to interact with animals with, with cats and dogs, and I think another reason is is people having fewer children, and that and that for many people their connection with the animals become closer when they have fewer family members. So, so the role of cats and dogs has changed a great deal, and now they're um, as far as the animals we think about and interact with and and are conscious about, uh, they're most prevalent in our minds. And as those animals become more prevalent in our minds, you argue that this gives rise to what you call the paradox of the pet food dish. Can you describe what that paradox is and what its um, sort of large-scale effects are? Right. So that's, that's the big theme of how, how these things change, that, that there's this great paradox that, you know, those of us who own cats and dogs, that moment of feeding uh, a cat or dog in the pet food dish is, is that moment of connection and care and concern in helping uh, 
a beloved friend, but it's, it's also a moment of indifference, generally in ignorance about the lives of the faraway cattle, pigs, and chickens, and and sheep, or fish, or other animals that that were killed to make that cat food. So there's this there's this paradox that as we talk more and more about benevolence, and as as benevolence becomes more and more important, we're often more and more ignorant about about the faraway lives of of animals that feed us. So there's an this sort of growing dichotomy between pet and livestock through the 20th century that livestock in the early 20th century often had some kind of personal relationship with with the end user. People often knew the chicken in their backyard that that provided them eggs and might eventually provide them with meat. People often knew the cow that provided them milk. People saw horses working in the streets. So, so that the role of uh, a pure worker that provided a service or a product and and sentient being that one was aware of were mixed, whereas um, as animals, as livestock moved farther and farther from the city, their lives became something that city people knew less and less about, and 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 as and that leads to this paradox of benevolence used to disease. As we focus more on benevolence, we are using and exploiting an ever greater number of faraway animals. So a couple minutes ago, you told a bit of the history of dogs and cats in Seattle. Um, but earlier, you also mentioned that Seattle was a it was a, it had a cow commons. And later on, you talk about Seattle as a dog commons in kind of the middle years of the 20th century. What do you mean by a dog commons? And how does that change as we get later into the 20th century? Right. So a dog commons is a, is a term that I've forgotten who I got it from. It wasn't my term, but but this this notion that that until the leash law of 1958, dogs had the right to roam free if they had a license. So common space was devoted to things that were uh, important to people, and uh, it was important enough that if you could have a a license, I think it might have been five dollars in the early 20th century, which precluded a lot of people from having dogs. If you had that license, your dog could roam free, and that was created a very different um, sort of relationship with dogs. I think, in some way, there's been a, a privatization of dogs. That that in the 30s and 40s, dogs roamed in neighborhoods, and and the various children in the neighborhood might play with a dog they knew, or a dog might go to school to meet children. And, and go home with them, so it kind of interacted in public place. But um, this dog became privatized. Everyone who wanted that sort of interaction had to have their own dogs, and they had to be on leashes and had to be confined in houses. So, so, so the dog commons disappeared from, and there were debates and letters and petitions, especially from the 1930s to the 1950s. And 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 at least in Seattle, I think the the issue that first brought this to people's attention was rabies and a rabies scare in the early 30s. But the discussion moved away from that. It was really focused on property, really focused on on the signs of a, of a prosperous, nice middle-class home with lawns and bushes and shrubs and flowers and, and, and the way that dogs threatened those. And those, those concerns became greater and greater until... The city passed a leash law, you know, not unanimously, but I believe around 57% of the people voted in favor of a leash law in, in 1957. So, um, 
So part of the reason for enforcing that was was to protect the growing uh, sense of a middle class home that that wasn't um, about producing eggs or producing milk, it was about affection and connection between people and animals and about um, having having a city where you could have a nice lawn and, and flowers and have it not be threatened by dogs. So again, it comes down to to an extent to dogs and animals as symbols and what they mean in within a city itself. Right. So I think, yeah, dogs, all animals have these important roles, I think, as friends and property and symbols. And certainly um, free-roaming dogs are uh, a symbol of of a backward city that, that people wanted to get rid of in the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. So finally, you very rightfully point out toward the end of the book the importance of salmon in the human history of Seattle. Uh, tell us why this fish has been has had such a contentious and also such an important history throughout um, Seattle's past. Right, I thought it was important to talk about salmon because many of these stories in this book are are broadly true throughout the United States with changes for different local conditions, but the salmon is in some ways unique in Seattle that um, that I don't think there are, many, there are not many cities where indigenous people have have fished for salmon in this place for millennia and and they still do so that is that continuity of the, the importance of salmon but but their lives have have changed greatly and there have been you know, great struggles over over salmon through the years and and an important struggle was was the right of indigenous people to fish for salmon in their usual, in accustomed places. That's a language from the treaties of the 1850s um, by which the U.S. government took land from the Salish people, but also made this promise. And that, that promise of, of fishing rights was often ignored and, and wildlife officials would pre- prevent Salish people from fishing. And so the fishing movement began in, in the 1960s and led to the Bolt decision of the 1970s that gave indigenous people half of of the, the fish that were available in different different fisheries. So it's been that struggle over salmon. And and salmon, I think for newcomers generally have this have this changing role as well. But I think in the early history of the city they were seen as as a sign that it it was a very different place in the eastern United States and not a sign of progress. And, and I think the early white settlers looked forward to having beef and having bread and having more familiar foods. But in the last 10 or 20 or 30 years, salmon had become a symbol of Seattle and a symbol of a connection to the natural world. And, and it's become very important uh, to many in Seattle to help to help preserve them and, and the city and also in order to to uh, follow the, the strictures of the Endangered Species Act, the city has been forced to try to uh, mitigate damage to fish's habitat. So there's been all this, this series of struggles over salmon, and, and they have been a part of life here for millennia, and they continue to, to swim through the waterways of Seattle. So they show this great continuity, but also this great change through Seattle's history. And again, thinking about animals as symbols, salmon almost come to represent a symbol of Seattle itself in certain ways. They become very closely associated with the Puget Sound region and Seattle itself. 
Right, they become the symbol, and yeah, Mayor Shell says that maybe, maybe the salmon will save us. That the efforts to preserve the salmon uh, bring people of of different ideologies together and and create a, a unifying symbol for the city. Even though in an earlier time they were seen as a symbol that that this this place uh, was backward. So I think the salmon are are important to many people, both as a source of food and and as and as something to to push people to to have environmental preservation and create habitat where salmon can survive. I hesitate to ask a historian to do any prognostication, but at the same time, this book feels very open-ended. This history feels very open-ended, and you kind of leave it on a fairly open-ended note. So I'm just curious what you see as the changing role of animals within Seattle, where you still live today, and how you might see that role changing in the future. Right. Well, I guess um, I guess the question is whether you know, existing trends will continue, whether whether there will be a shift, but there's been this this, this trend of, of separating uh, beloved animals from from used animals more and more throughout history, and and like one one possibility is that will just continue and will uh, and will um, lavish more and more affection on on cats and dogs and become more and more ignorant about the lives of faraway animals. But, but I think there are maybe some some signs that some of those things are shifting, but that um, vegetarianism and veganism have always been only a small minority of of city people in Seattle and in the U.S., but, but the amount of meat people are consuming has started to come down starting in 2005. And um, and there are you know, greater efforts to, to know something about the lives of the animals that produce our faraway food. There are various you know, words on on the food we buy, of about organic or cage-free or humane certified, and those words are often hard to decipher, and some of them you know, have much meaning, but I think they indicate desire on the part of some people to be to be more aware of, of these faraway animals. So it's certainly, certainly my hope that uh, in thinking about all the animals that have been a part of, of urban life and thinking about the ways that that all the animals that were important to city people were immediately visible in the streets and in backyards 100 years ago. Uh, I hope that encourages people to try to bridge that gap and become aware of those animals that are now far away and are part of their life as they as they make choices about how they want to live on this planet and in this city that that we human beings share with a number of other creatures who have important interests and important desires themselves untangling the paradox of the pet food dish you might think of it as yes i hope that that uh, i certainly you know can't resolve that paradox but i think that thinking through these issues can allow you know, each reader to, to to understand that more and maybe and maybe find some way of dealing with that paradox in a more honest open way and awareness of of all the animals that are part of our lives so, Fred, now that this book is finished and winning awards, what are you working on next? What do you have uh, on your plate coming up? Well, I'm uh, starting research and thinking about um, about English sparrows and European starlings and and how they made the way across this continent. I guess this book about Seattle tried to look at some of the most important animals in the economy and, and legal issues and 
I'm going to look at a couple animals that to most people are, are not very important, but, but that either that managed to be introduced in the eastern United States and to spread across the continent, and especially to think about the way that intersects with ideas about immigration and and uh, and and so this curious way in which many people thought bringing starlings and sparrows were familiar reminders of home, and for European immigrants, they're a way to to belong in the United States and to make uh, the United States a familiar place with familiar animals. And then more recently in the last, you know, few decades, there's been a focus on native plants and a way to that people assert their belonging here is by is by hating these English sparrows and European starlings. So their place has changed a great deal. So I want to think about their role in in uh, in immigration and, and the changing landscape of the United States and and see and look at these these avian immigrants who, who conquered the continent and are now in almost all of the 48 contiguous states. Well, that sounds great. And when it's done, we will have you back on the podcast. That would be great. Frederick Brown is an independent historian and is the author of The City is More Than Human, an animal history of Seattle, which came out in 2016 with the University of Washington Press and recently won the WHA's Hal K. Rothman Award. Fred, thanks again for joining us. Thanks. It's been a pleasure to be here.